0: Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day, we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Well, welcome, lovers of product. Today, I am here with Michael Sippy, who is VP of Product at Medium. Why don't we kick this off, Michael, by having us give a, a little overview of your background?
1: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you said, I'm VP Product at Medium. I have a great team of product managers as well as the design team and our user happiness team and our product science team is in my org. So I work with a bunch of really great people every day and I'm hiring. So, you know, if you're out there and you're interested, hit me up. I, I've i had an interesting career since the early 90s, as my friend Gibson Biddle has said we're both kind of old as dirt, but I I started in the early nineties at Advent Software, which is an enterprise software company, essentially doing product marketing type stuff. And then moved into product management and joke that like one of my first jobs was actually literally shipping software. And we put floppy disks and CD-ROMs into boxes and shipped them to users, shipped them to customers. Kind of evolved from that, I went to business school, Worked in kind of Web 1.0 at an at a internet consulting company. Did a lot of really interesting kind of fun projects there. Helped to start a, an email services firm, actually, that uh, was focused on kind of large consumer internet brands. And then went to Six Apart, which is a blogging platform provider. We, we made Type a Movable Type and product called Vox before Vox became a, a website. And then a platform called LiveJournal. And I ran product there for about six or seven years. We sold that company to Video Egg, became a, an online media company called Say Media. I stayed there for a little while. Then I went to Twitter and I ran product at Twitter for a couple of years. And then I had a startup. I left Twitter and took some time off. And I started a company called Talk Show. We were building a social media app and then a podcast discovery service. And then while we were in beta with the second one, the company was acquired by Medium. And then I joined here. So had kind of a roundabout way of going from kind of enterprise to and some consulting in there to consumer internet and loving what I'm doing now.
0: Awesome. I mean that's that's quite a, a, a breath of experiences, right? Yeah. A pretty cool story. You mentioned Gib, who I just interviewed, <laughs> I think a month or two ago. It was great. Yeah, uh, the podcast will be coming out before this one, I'm sure, but not quite yet, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I've read too that you're one of the first bloggers, right? Is that true? Did I hear that
1: right? That is true. And it's something I apologize for all the time. But uh, yeah, so I, I started writing online in 1995 really fell in love with the web in the very early days. I started with a, actually in kind of 93, 94 with an email newsletter that I was sending to basically anybody that I knew that had an email address back then. And so when the web came along, I fell in love with the web and decided I needed to learn some HTML. And if you need to learn HTML, you need to have something to put on the, on the web. So I started publishing my writing at a site called Stating the Obvious. It's actually all still there at theobvious.com. And then basically like was one of the first people to actually start doing like daily link blogging and yeah so basically like back then there were only like a couple dozen of us that were doing blogging at the time we were linking to each other and learning from each other and talking to each other all the time and it was a pretty small community and that we always it's kind of funny because back then one of the, the early pioneers of blogging was dave weiner who's still at it and dave would Basically, say like, yeah, eventually there'll be a billion bloggers on the planet, and turns out that there actually are probably there are more than a billion bloggers on the planet, and most of them use Facebook, essentially doing a lot of the same things that we were doing back then, which is sharing links and sharing things that happen in our lives, and now it's just all happening on this massive platform.
0: Yeah, I mean it's amazing how things have changed and evolved over the past decade. Talk to me a little bit more about that. How have you seen social media and social media platforms? Transform in the past decade, and, and how do you think it's changed the landscape of tech
1: oh it's fascinating so I think that well obviously you know things have exploded when I started working on these products in you know I started like advising i was a blogger actually and I first met Eve Williams back in kind of ninety nine two thousand we were all very kind of mission driven and I remember at the time bloggers tagline was push button publishing for the people and the idea was to help you know enable anyone to be able to put their words and ideas and thoughts online and i think that mission i think that a lot of us were very very mission driven and when i joined six apart in 2004 you know the the kind of the mix of the combination of products of mobile type and TypePad, and and then we we acquired live journal was essentially you know let's go bring these tools to kind of prosumer users teenagers with LiveJournal, and then publishing companies with movable type. And I think that we were firm believers in kind of the power of the technology. And I think that that served us well in being kind of an evangelistic kind of industry and wanting to go have more people, essentially the the thinking at the time was, you know, more people doing this is better. And so as many folks as you can get on these platforms and sharing is, is important. And that, you know, that ethos basically is, you know, became what was driving twitter and was driving facebook and instagram and Flickr before it and essentially more people sharing is better and i think that we made a bunch of mistakes along the way and uh, i mean the good news is that you know now these tools are widely available the bad news is that you know now these tools are widely available and used in ways that i think we didn't anticipate at the time and so you have kind of all sorts of bad things that have happened around abuse and around both abuse and you know both on a personal level and a systemic level, that now we're cleaning up from. And so that's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I feel that we've, you know, the, the products are unbelievably powerful and can be used in kind of both good and bad ways. And I don't, I think that we didn't spend enough time thinking about ways that those tools could be used for bad, actually. And so that's, that's something that I think about a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great things about tech and having been in tech, and you mentioned You know, people being old as dirt, I'm one of those people. (laughs) You know, I I remember gold discs and all of that, right? Way back in the day. But, you know, we all often look at problems and opportunities with wide-eyed enthusiasm, right? And we're thinking about all the great things that can be done and and not necessarily focused on, you know, how the power of the platforms we're creating can be abused. So I can see it's it's good in that, you know, looking at it with that wide-eyed enthusiasm, we open up a lot of new opportunities, right, and create things without creating unnecessary restraints, but then you do also create things of, of huge, you know, reach, and then you have to go back and and reassess, you know, the bad impacts on society. Right.
1: Yeah. It's, I was, I was chatting with some friends the other night at dinner and it was kind of a structured conversation at dinner party. And and one of the questions was, if you could go back 10 years, like what advice would you give yourself? Or would you give companies like Twitter or Facebook or, you know, about or YouTube around, how you could avoid like what happened. And I think that there's a lot of inherent, as you say kind of kind of wide-eyed enthusiasm and creativity about how the platforms could be used and the use cases for them. There's a discipline that other industries have used for a long time, which is kind of scenario planning and essentially employing really creative both writers, researchers and you know researchers writers and creative thinkers, to not only outline kind of the positive scenarios which is something that I think that a bunch of us were really good at but also the negative scenarios. And so there's like a long history of you know Shell for example using scenario planning to help understand kind of the future of the oil business. And I think that if I were to go back 10 years one of the pieces of advice I give myself is spend a lot more time doing scenario planning around how things could go horribly wrong. There's actually a, a really good article that was published on Medium the last week or so about about companies now employing sci-fi writers to kind of write, you know, potential future scenarios. And I think that one of the things that you want to make sure you're doing in that type of planning is to think about the potential worst case scenario of how things could go kind of horribly wrong so that you can think about like, you know, backup then, what would you do to the product and the, and the system that you're building a little bit differently?
0: So talk to me a little bit about one thing you just mentioned, you know, and I was actually going to ask you that same question. What what would you do if you could go back? What would you do differently? And it's great that you asked yourself it. Uh, That makes it even easier. But what advice would you give people today? Like, are people doing enough right now? Never mind going back.
1: You know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know. I'm not like, I'm sure that there's a lot of introspection and deeper thought happening at the big platforms right now, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera. One of the things that I have, I mean, on the practical advice for product managers is, you know, we write product briefs all the time and we use kind of an adapted form of the opportunity assessment that Marty Kagan writes about in his book Inspired. And one of the questions that we've added to our template, and, you know, we, we do this, I'm not going to say that we do this reliably all the time or that we do it well all the time because we're still getting better at this. But I asked the PMs to essentially add a question, which is what could go wrong? you know, essentially it's a a variant of the question, like, how might this fail? And I think that essentially having like as product people, as people that build, like you're kind of naturally optimistic people, right? You have an idea of something that you want to see in the world and you collaborate with engineers and designers and researchers and, you know, sometimes salespeople and marketers to, you know, put that product in the world because you want, you want to see change and you want things to be better. I think it's the responsibility of the team to also be thinking about how this might fail and not just fail from a metrics perspective or from a business perspective, but how might this fail your users? And I think building that muscle just is a requirement now, and especially in kind of digital product management of really thinking about what are the impact, what negative impact could the feature that you're building and the product that you're building have on users as well as your business.
0: I think that's great. And, you know, you were VP of product at Twitter, like you mentioned. That had to be lots of interesting experiences like this. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I feel like, you know, as you mentioned before we kick this off, I feel like there needs to be a part two now. You know, there's so much we can dig <laughs> into here. I feel like they're yeah. like just, like, I just had one with Bob Moles that was just published. And I think there's going to be a part two on skills people need to innovate, right? I feel like, yeah. you know, I might be hitting you up in a few months for part two. But uh, having said that, you know, what's the brief, you know, what it was like being VP of product at Twitter, because that was, it it created
1: its own medium, right? Yeah. I was there at a really interesting time. There's a joke in the industry that essentially the role is similar to the role in Harry Potter, the professor of the dark arts, or the drummer in smile tap, which is a recurring cast of characters or a rotating cast of characters, not so much recurring. And so I was there from beginning of 2012 to beginning of 2014, which was a very exciting time for Twitter. And I feel very lucky to have worked on a product that I love and with a set of really fantastic engineers, product managers, and designers and executives. Like I was was there at a really great time and a really really exciting time in the company's history. You know, while I was there, you know, on the core product, we brought photos to the product. We brought conversation, much more in-depth conversations to the product. We really shifted everything about our development process to be mobile first. We grew the product design team pretty dramatically. Um, the company was growing really dramatically at the time. And then in addition, we, we did some things that were kind of really fun and strategic for the company. We bought Vine. We bought a company called Crashlytics, which turned into uh, Fabric now owned by Google. And there were a lot of like really fun, exciting things that we were doing. And then I got to work with like great people on it. We were scaling, you know, the service like crazy. We were sort of getting past the fail whale days, which was great. From my perspective, I didn't really have to deal very much with the fail whale, but you know we were essentially you know on the path to going public, and so there was you know we were focused on um, user growth and user acquisition and activation and retention, and so those were exciting times. It was good. Awesome. You know there were mistakes. There were mistakes along the way. We you can read all about them. We did you know and it was also a time of kind of hard decisions. I was part of the you know team and wrote the blog post that curtailed use of the Twitter API and kind of changed the nature of the Twitter API. There's also mistakes we made about and then quickly reverted about how the block behavior worked on Twitter. So there's lots of learnings along the way
0: yeah so let's dig into one thing and I, I don't like you you mentioned we could probably spend a few hours just talking about your experiences at Twitter but it, could you take us through the thought process around you know the pros and cons of the API decision? I think that was you know very interesting at the time.
1: yeah I'd have to like go back and really like start to like inhabit myself from 20, 2012 but I'll just tell you that at the time the company before I even had joined had already signaled to the developer market. That building, we're, that Twitter was essentially had acquired Tweety and was going to build its own clients. And that the goal of Twitter building its own clients and own apps, especially in uh, the burgeoning app store, was to essentially control the user experience and have better control over the user experience. And so that message had been telegraphed prior to my joining the company. The thing, the decision that we were making when I joined was at the time, the API, there were two key things about the API you need to understand. One is that Developers could use the API without actually logging in. So there was whole swaths of the API that you could access without actually using OAuth or any token to access the API. So that was we had a whole bunch of people that were using the API and we didn't even know who they were. So it was difficult to actually mo- either, you either know, monitor or police that activity and folks using lots and yeah. lots of and right Twitter
0: for abuse right? there,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. Right for abuse. So the first, you know, the one of the big things we did was actually require if you were going to use the API that you had to authenticate and let us know who you were. The second thing we did is we added rate limits on particular endpoints in the API in order to start to shape its use. And the guidelines that we put in place and the rate limits that we put in place were essentially reflections of the strategy that we had already started to signal to the market, which was really don't build clients. (laughs) And Twitter's had a long history at the time of having people building third-party applications the really interesting thing is that the Twitter API really mimicked the web experience and so you couldn't really get true kind of user experience or new innovation in how people use Twitter from third party clients and so we were seeing a lot of the same basically the same UX people were building the same UX as the core Twitter experience and so we essentially as Twitter wanted to the ability to iterate on that user experience with and so we needed that flexibility of how to how to do that without being beholden to kind of third-party applications and so we we telegraphed really strongly i did in a in a very long very very long blog post that kind of explained you know what our thinking was and then just essentially did that through mechanisms with rate limiting and the you know the other thing that we did at the same time was you know roughly at the same time is launch a whole bunch of new tools for third parties to have much more to, to publish much more expressively inside twitter so we at the same time launched twitter cards which you know allow publishers and app developers to include content that is embedded inside tweets you know video and link previews and things like that in order to make you know their experience publishing on twitter better i think we could have done a much better job of communicating that i think there's a whole bunch of like things we could have learned ahead of you know like looking in hindsight But I think that, you know, looking back, like, I still think it was the right decision. And I think that it basically, like, paved the way for Twitter to to essentially grow its business and to to make decisions about to have a lot more degrees of freedom around what it could do actually in the uh, applications themselves.
0: So that brings up some interesting things to talk about, right? I think we can say that it seems, and seems is probably much too light of a word, but it seems that tech is becoming a space that's more and more politicized you know, given your experience both at Twitter and now at Medium, you know, which are both social platforms where users have and are given freedom to express their thoughts, what's your perspective on how tech as a medium is becoming politicized?
1: So I think it comes back to like with the thing we were talking about before, which is it's, you know, we've created these platforms for people to share and the, where you see more kind of radical politic politicization and kind of you know, content to the extremes, is on the platforms where you have both kind of large reach and essentially the thing I kind of like talk about is like speed, which is you can have, you know, fast to post, fast to get shared and redistributed with kind of fast reaction from users. And so it it basically like, especially on, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter, you have, you know, those platforms are optimized for that, right? Which is, it's really easy to share. It's really easy to, it's it's designed to essentially elicit, you know, very fast emotional reactions from the readers. And so when that happens, you have essentially, you know, it's very, <laughs> it's no surprise that you have folks that essentially do polarization. And there are all sorts of kind of conversational dynamics and features that inside each of those platforms that kind of either amplify or or not, the kind of spread of, you know, either, you know, of political memes and ideas that, you know, are designed to piss people off, right? So, and I think that both of, and probably Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, to some extent, have grappled over the past two, three, four years with like the policies that they implement and how they are managing the kind of conversational health of their platforms. At Medium, we have a slightly different approach. And I think that the long form nature of medium generally makes it slower. And we have really invested over the past year in a very different approach for content recommendations that doesn't give folks that are essentially writing poor quality content reach. So we've invested a lot in both content quality scoring and machine learning, as well as content curation cues so that stories that we recommend to users in their homepage, in their personalized email digests, in recirculation at the bottom of an article, in our topic pages, are all stories that have been vetted by a team of curators. And that actually gives essentially like like removes the incentives, a lot of the incentives for folks to kind of write really, you know, kind of the type of political content that you see on other platforms i'm not saying that it doesn't exist saying that it doesn't get amplified the way that it would on a twitter or facebook the other piece is we've taken an approach with our rules and we've made we made a change earlier this year where we changed our rules so that we take into account behavior off of medium so that if we see you essentially towing the line on medium but you're doing things that would break our rules offset off of medium, then we'll make decisions that we can we can remove you from the platform. We think that we're we're doing things both from a recommendations perspective and a rules perspective to make sure that we have we're spreading ideas that matter and spreading helping people understand the world more deeply. And I think the nature of the product is very different from what's happening in kind of the faster mediums of Facebook and Twitter.
0: Cool. So as much as I'd like to talk about, you know, Twitter, Medium, Six Apart, and LiveJournal for a few more hours. So let's let's save that for another day. Let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, skill sets for product managers. You know, you've talked in the past and you've written about, you know, concept of setting up hypothesis. Why do you find that that's really important for PMs and and how do you talk to them about setting up and testing
1: effective hypothesis? All right. Here we go. I I love this stuff. This is really fun. Okay. So basically, I have this point of view that essentially all product management and even like all companies are just tests of hypotheses, right? If you go back to like the scientific method stuff that you learned in like eighth grade, right, which is you observe some things about the world, you look at the world and you see things, and then you have a theory that says, if I do X, it will lead to change Y, right? So... That's like, that's your core hypothesis. Like if we do X, it will lead to change Y. This will happen. And then what you do as a scientist is you go test that hypothesis, right? And, you know, if you're a consumer software company, you know, consumer internet company, you have different tools available to you than if you're an enterprise software company, you have different tools available to you. But generally like you're going and testing a hypothesis. And so I talk a lot with my PMs and work with my PMs on like, let's make sure that we have, that you have both, strong hypotheses that are kind of logically consistent, that you have data that backs them up, and like that you're bold in your hypothesis testing, right? So let me talk about both of like those two things. So like one is like, what is a strong hypothesis? One is like, well, you can actually, hey, you actually have one. You have a theory of change. Like if I do X, it will lead to Y. And what I really try to you know, work with PMs that I work with on is like, let's make sure that we understand that theory of change. Which is, do we know, like, let's say we're going to change a feature on a particular surface and we want a user to do something different, right? So do we know how many people visit that surface? Do we know, like, if we change this particular action, do people actually, do we have any data that says, like, this is an actual problem for them? That, you know, if we change it, it'll make them better. If they actually change their behavior, what downstream impact will it have? so what you know if i do x will it lead to y like show me the math even if it's like back of the envelope lightweight spreadsheet math that shows if they do x it will lead to y and that y will lead to like some business outcome that's good for us right so is the change in y big enough for it to actually matter and that gets to the second piece which is like bold hypotheses which is it's very easy to think like all right we have the we have a. I am blessed. Like we have a great testing infrastructure at Medium. Like we can run A/B tests on a bunch of different surfaces. You know, we have like all sorts of tools that will test for statistical significance about whether a change has happened, etc. But unless you can actually make a case that if we do X and it leads to Y and it will lead to business outcome Z, like you need to have a hypothesis that's bold enough that you know the users are going to notice. It will actually drive enough change. So that it's worth our development time to actually go do it, and so we just spend a lot of time thinking about like what are the problems we need to go solve, and what's our hypothesis for how we can go solve that problem. And because generally, like we're all just product scientists essentially, like doing tests about you know we observe something in the world, we have an idea, we go test whether that you know and that idea turns into a hypothesis, and we go test whether that hypothesis is true. And it's wow. fun. <laughs> yeah it,
0: it is fun, and I, I think yeah. you know, the more pms and product managers think about it that way, the better. Can you take us through an actual example like talk to me about the hypothesis, how you tested it, maybe even talk about one like that there's a I imagine there's common mistakes people make when they set up tests. Maybe touch on that and talk to me about the outcome. Is that reasonable?
1: yeah, I'll give you an example we so medium is a subscription business we run in the media business is called a metered paywall, so we allow users to view a set number of stories every month for free before they hit the paywall and that we ask them to subscribe. And it's this paywall mechanic that actually drives like our business, right We had a hypothesis that right now that meter is set at three stories per month. We observed a whole bunch of data that essentially where people, how many people read you know one meter story, two meter stories, three meter stories every month, we know how many people actually try to read four meter stories, five meter stories, six meters stories before while they're actually metered out. And we have a bunch of support requests and anecdotal data about the meter actually people being worried about reading too many stories and getting metered out, and they just worry about their reading behavior. So based on the things that we observed, we said we had a hypothesis that said, okay, if we increase the meter limit, we will have an X potential X percent decrease in conversion to subscriber, but it will be offset by an increase in engagement from users who decide to read more. And if you have that increase engagement users to decide to read more over time, we would see like, if we increase that limit to five, we would see over time that those users would stick around longer and be more engaged and eventually convert to members. And so, you know, that's our hypothesis. We decided to, you know, how do we be bold? Well, we tested both a five-story limit and a seven-story limit because we really wanted to understand kind of the shape of that kind of supply-demand curve, if you will, and so and what the kind of, you know, essentially like price elasticity is for reading metered stories. So we ran that experiment, and we ran it for an entire month of the cycle because our meter resets on the first of every month, and we ran that test for the entire month, and essentially learned that we should stick with three. So this is where it's like, I love being a product scientist because sometimes you actually learn things that like, you know what, we should stick with what we have and we should try a different approach. And what we learned is that we wouldn't have an increase, as much of an increase in engagement from five and seven to offset the change in conversion. And so instead, and basically we did some user research and looking at the user experience and basically learned that we needed a change that experience in different parts of the funnel in order to get the to get the benefits of increased user engagement. And so at the end of the month, we knew this kind of two, we, we had a hypothesis that it wouldn't work kind of two weeks in based on the early data, but we ran it for the full month in order to get the full cycles worth of data. And now it's basically led us like, okay, we've learned that. It led us to a, a new hypothesis that we'll test in Q1 around kind of different kind of personalized meter behavior. So we learned a ton about kind of trade-offs of user engagement versus conversion rates using those different meters.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I think it's interesting. You had a little comment about people would ration, ration themselves. Like I don't want to read, yeah. want to read right. the first week because then there'll be something okay. I want to read and I'm not going to be able to do it. So right. they got to, they got to right. see if it's worthy. I think there was a Seinfeld about uh being worthy. Uh, I won't exactly mention, but that's something yeah. to do with Elaine, whether you're worthy or yeah. not back in the day. It was pretty pretty funny. So the same thing with reading Medium. Is this article right. worthy or not of one of my reading? Right. right. That's pretty cool. So what, yeah. talk to me about common mistakes you see. You know, What do you see people make as a common mistake when they set up a test?
1: One of the common mistakes you, you see is that basically, sometimes it's about setting up a test. Sometimes it's just about having that product hypothesis, which is that People fall in love with the solution and then they'll back into a problem in order to support the solution. I'll give you an example of a thing we're building right now. One of the, the things that we have a, a whole set of kind of topic organization inside Medium. So every story that we commission or that we syndicate or that we curate into recommendations gets added into a kind of both a primary topic and a bunch of secondary topics. and a medium that helps with like story discovery and framing for a reader and understanding like this is a story about technology or this is a story about self or this is a story about relationships and it aids in kind of further discovery of those topics. And so, and on, on desktop web, it's uh, you have many, 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 more pixels to essentially like place those topics and express those topics and help people discover those topics, et cetera. On mobile, things are more constrained. So There's been a thing floating around of like, we should change our kind of default search tab experience to enable more topic browsing because like people just can't find topics and they can't find what it is. And so the team kind of fell in love with its own idea and essentially came down this path of like, let's go build some wireframes around this topic browsing experience. And so really like that was the, then it became like, all right, let's, the problem is like, we don't have a topic browse experience. And that's not really the problem. The problem is that readers aren't discovering topics well enough. So, you know, we, we go through a product review process here. And really one of the things we did is in product review is kind of back up and say, is this really the best way to solve the problem? And so we just spent a bunch of time thinking about like other ways that you could go solve this problem. And we have some things in development that like essentially that are simpler and easier and faster that will help us and help readers like discover topics faster on, on surfaces where they're already exploring. So the home screen of the app, on story pages, et cetera, that don't require an entirely new surface to be built. And so there's often this kind of, you get you know, an idea in your head for a product feature and 100% been guilty of this in the past and will 100% be guilty of this in the future of like, let's go build this thing. And you fall in love with the idea and you fall in love with the feature and you sort of forget that, hey, there's probably an easier way to go solve the problem that you initially started out with.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting. I I was interviewing Ryan Singer a little while back and we talked about the what's and the when's like, what were you trying to accomplish? When were you trying to accomplish this? What were you doing? Getting better understanding of what the customer was trying to do, as opposed to pushing a feature you think is a solution to their problem, which may not be in any case, or maybe totally Yeah,
1: like, and again, I mean, it gets to like the thing we were talking about before, like we're all just generally optimists and we love to build things. So it's fun. Like, Building new things is fun. And so you have to sort of be the kind of hard nose, like, no, but like, is this, we really need to build this? Like, is there a simpler way or easier way to go solve this problem? Yeah, so yeah.
0: And is it really trying, solving the customer's problem? Right? Yeah,
1: exactly, so.
0: exactly. So talk to me about the future. So what upcoming trends do you see in product management?
1: Oh, man. So I think there's something really interesting happening. So on the product side, And like related to product management, just in like the consumer tech space, there's something really interesting happening with, like in the broad category of connected devices, right? And we were talking earlier about AirPods. Like AirPods are pretty much my favorite new product in the past year or so, a couple of years, however long it's been, because they're really, really simple and really, really sophisticated. And so there's sort of like an iceberg product where The UX is like, there's this case, it charges, you stick the things in your ears, they turn on and you can enjoy the world. Like that's fine, enjoy music, you can enjoy, do do your phone calls, you can do whatever, right? So, But the product decisions that go into each one of those things of like, how's the case? Where's the battery? How long do the things last? Like all of the double tap things for Siri, like all of that, they're essentially like these little tiny computers in your ears and all of the decisions that go into those things that make the user experience, the things that the that the consumer actually touches and feels incredibly simple, there's tons of tons of sophisticated kind of product decisions that go into that product. I'll give you like, so the voice things, like all the stuff that's happening with like Google Home and Alexa are super challenging from a product perspective because, Discovery on those devices is really, really difficult. How do you find new skills? How do you get access to consumers? Like the channels, if you thought like you know, building distributing things through Facebook is hard. I mean, it's like a hundred times harder to get anything popular on Google Home or on Alexa. So that's really interesting to me. Additionally, like related to that is essentially all of this UX that's going into kind of glanceable UI, and basically what it what it's going to push us to do is really focus on the end user and the consumer in their context and in whether it's in their home or whether it's in their car or whether they're like fumbling around and sticking these little white things in their ears to really understand their kind of motivation what they're trying to get out of that product how they use it what other things they're distracted by and really like the successful products and the successful PMs that figure this out Will find the best way to put the user at the center of that experience, and not their product or their content at the center of that experience. And that's that's like it's super super hard. (laughs) That is a really really hard product and design challenge. Like all of those products are going to create all sorts of really interesting product and design challenges for people. And so, like if I were you know starting out in my career, I'd be thinking a lot about how do I get deeper kind of customer and consumer insight and how do I think about essentially computing experiences fading into the background and how do you become a great product manager for those types of experiences?
0: I think that's that's a great thing to think about in upcoming trends, I see that a lot. I mean, you see the world changing. I have three or four Alexas in my home, right? I think that's gonna become more and more prominent. The experiences people have and how designers and product managers think about them, is it's a different way of thinking about things I think you yeah. need to have.
1: Yeah, I mean, you- And you have to think about also like, I mean, back to our earlier thing of like, what could go wrong? Like doing some scenario planning around what's the absolute worst thing that could happen with an Alexa device, right? So your private conversations or things that happen in your bedroom are recorded and shared on the internet, right? Like that would be pretty bad. So you have to think about like, how do you actually build trust with the consumer of putting that type of device like into your home? That's anyway, there's like fun stuff in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of bad scenarios. Someone hacks into them and has access and can speak through them, right? There's yeah, all exactly. kinds of uh, you know potentially horrible scenarios there that we want to avoid. So you mentioned you know the AirPods. I'm a huge fan of them. I wish they stayed in my ear a little better, but I feel like I have a, <laughs> you know I have an abnormal ear opening. I have no idea. They they stay in, but not when I work out. Yeah. Favorite product is is that it, or is there another one that's your favorite product?
1: That's probably my favorite product over the past couple of years because it's it's something that like you didn't actually think that you had this problem that it would solve, and it really solves this problem well. Yeah, that's probably my favorite.
0: Yeah, I, I know. I, I bought it for a very different reason than I think I love it today, and I, I bought it because I'm a destroyer of headphone cords. Like within 2 months I can pretty much destroy a headphone cord. I don't know how I do it so effectively, <laughs> but they tend to break, the sound gets bad. It just it doesn't matter if they're cheap or expensive. I try to take care of the expensive ones at least, I still break them. So I was like AirPods, there's no cord to break, right? So they'll last and, yeah. and they have, but now just <laughs> everything else about them I like even more. So it is yeah. it's an amazing product.
1: It's such a boring product for me to pick, but it's so good. Like <laughs> it so is funny. <laughs> it, it changes,
0: it's changed a lot of things for me too. I mean, it, the whole hands-free, I don't catch them in cords. Spend a lot more time, you know, doing, having conversations while doing other things, whether it's driving yeah. or, you know, walking yeah. my dog or all of that. It's just yeah. made that whole process, simple music, simple, you know, yeah. there's some little things I would love, like, you know, yeah. my car, it, it, yeah. it flips it onto the Bluetooth. I was like, if I have my AirPods in my ear, I really want the phone calls coming to my ear and it, it doesn't seem to make yeah. up its mind, but I love, right. love, love that product. The other thing, you're, you're an avid book reader. So what what's a book you always recommend?
1: Well, do you want business or like fiction? Let's have, or? Let's have one of
0: both. Let's have a fiction right. one and a business one.
1: All right. Let me think. All right. So, I mean, for product managers, I mean, I love Marty Kagan's book just because it's full of practical advice. So inspired creating tech products that customers love. It's just full of really practical advice and templates and things you can go do. There's another great book that I recommend to PMs and designers as well by Erica Hall called Just Enough Research, which is practical advice on how to actually talk to users and do, as she says, just enough research. So it's not like the in-depth guide, it's like the, here's the on the ground, practical advice on how to make sure that you're bringing users and customers into the conversation of when you're building products without going like way too deep. So it's a very, very good book, so I recommend those too. On the fiction side, I read a lot of fiction. I can tell you, I think the best book I read this year it was called Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. It's a really outstanding novel that has two very different, seemingly disconnected stories in part one and part two that have the same theme and really make you think about Asymmetry and political relationships and personal relationships and economic relationships. It's basically like, it's it's an incredible novel. Really fantastic.
0: Awesome, I I read a lot of fiction myself, so that's one I haven't read, I'll have to check it out. So one final question for you, at least for today. Three words to describe yourself.
1: Three words to describe myself. Enthusiastic and reflective and silly. Could I like take it. Every once That's, in a while. That
0: yeah. was great. Thank you for your time today. This has been awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is really good.
0: This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.